Welcome back to the Digital Healthcare Podcast. I have another great guest, Evan Kerstell. Uh, he has a robust experience. Evan, thanks so much for joining the program. Uh, I want to kick off with your career. So maybe if you could give a brief overview of some of the highlights and we can we can jump in from there. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Nice to connect. I hope it's uh, your surviving winter there in Indianapolis, uh, better Barely. than I am here in, in southern New Hampshire. Um, but yeah, much like yourself, I, I sort of came from and my origins in the enterprise IT and telecom world. So I, I worked for companies in tech tech, uh, before we started talking much about health tech and came, uh, through the world of Oracle and Intel and startups in, in the sort of technology world and over time over the last uh, I'd say number of years have developed kind of a personal and professional fascination with health tech and digital health and wearables and the whole ecosystem that is uh, health IT today. How how do you define health tech versus digital health? Because I think there's almost a branding confusion. Everyone calls it a little bit something differently. Do you have a clear distinction between those two terms? Not really. I, I think it's okay. uh, I think it's semantics. It's like when you talk about mobile versus wireless, you, you, you know, you're talking about fundamentally the same thing. I, I think it's just context. Are you talking about a patient context? Are you ha- talking about it in hospital context or, a, you know, maybe an enterprise or a data center? You, you know, that's the main difference. But fundamentally, I think we're on the same page. So how much, you mentioned telecoms was where you started, and I think you came from a sales background. How much did, or I guess, as you evolved into health or health tech, how much overlap were there between the two industries? You know, traditionally, industries have been pretty siloed. I mean, if you work in aviation, you had your own five-letter acronyms and your own, uh, you know, proprietary protocols and silos and you didn't really look outside of your industry. And I think that was true and still is true in healthcare in many ways. But what's happening in the convergence of technologies is we're seeing a lot of crossover. And what's happening in wireless and telecom trends is as relevant in healthcare as it is in aviation or banking. And so there's a lot to learn across multiple disciplines and industry verticals. And, um, you know, a lot of crossover of technologies and applications and use cases, and probably in your own experience, you know, you're leveraging a lot of things like cloud and storage and networking in a healthcare context that's equally as relevant in other, you know, industries. <clears throat> so that's what makes it a, a, an amazing time to be in, uh, in technology. Yeah, and my personal assessment of healthcare, where we're at now from a technical standpoint, so many sectors you've just seen get completely disrupted from digital technology and healthcare really hasn't gone through that evolution in full, I don't think. Would you agree with that? And I guess the the reason I, I assess that that's the case is that we lag behind and in a lot of cases for good reasons, we're dealing with people and patients consuming things. Um, so you, j- you just have to have that extra bit of caution. Um, 
So yeah, do you have, do you agree with that? And do you think what's the reasoning behind the lag in healthcare? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, there are different standards of privacy and security and, uh, and, you know, legal, uh, you know, kind of compliance and regulatory frameworks that are in play. But I think those are also excuses for the lack of progress and innovation in many ways that we've seen in healthcare, the sort of artificial barriers that it, that have been put up, and the um, you know structural challenges that we have in many countries delivering care. So it's a unique environment, and uh, it's it's fascinating to study and to to observe how fast things are changing because I think this industry is opening up and it's the best time ever to be an industry observer or, or a participant or an entrepreneur or pick your role in the industry. Yeah. And hopefully it soon in the future, it'll be a uh, beneficial for patients to participate in. Cause right now that's not necessarily the case. And I'm wondering what's your perspective on that? Cause there's so much talk about the expensiveness of healthcare and the, just the behemoth it is from a, whether you look at it from a, a GDP perspective or anything like that. And in, in telecom or some of those other sectors, it's kind of adapt or die, right? In healthcare, that's not necessarily the case. How, how have you seen the market shift? And do you think soon in the future that patients will see the technology benefit them from a cost and, and uh, experiences perspective? You know, I'm cautiously optimistic, like you are, about patients adopting and using technology for improvement and self-care and, and, and making their lives better. I'm also eyes wide open in terms of the challenges and barriers. Uh, you know, I, I think like you, I'm probably an early adopter of a lot of uh, technology from wearables to apps and digital health services of different kinds. And uh, I think we're going to see, based on my experience, even this year at CES and a lot of the digital health innovation explosion of use cases and devices. And we're seeing the marketplace will kind of open up and sort out a lot of the winners and losers. And I think a lot of the traditional incumbents who've been reluctant to change their practices or innovate will be carried along kicking and screaming. So I think, you know, what's happening at Amazon and Google and elsewhere is kind of a big wake-up call to a lot of the incumbent, let's say, players without naming names <laughs> in, the, in the healthcare space. And uh, ultimately, I think the patients will, the patient will win as a result. Yeah, you talked about CES and I'll plug your LinkedIn and all the other social platforms you have. You put out so much content and it's such relevant and insightful content. I thank you for putting that out and I'd encourage everyone to go oh, check no, it out. Oh, thank you. And I would encourage everyone to engage on social media. I mean, despite all the dark and downsides of social, there's a tremendous opportunity to get out and educate and inform and learn and share and, and meet uh, like-minded people. And I see that as the power of social ultimately that will overcome a lot of the security and trolls and, and nonsense <laughs> that we see out there. But yeah, no, I love the content that we're, everyone's creating and, and what a great time to be uh, an observer of this space. 
especially I found it especially LinkedIn is so valuable in, in terms of getting information. I think having that professional feel and vibe to it cuts out on some of the the noise and crap that gets into a lot of the other platforms. It's just such a been a, such a great resource. Does does that stand out for you as one that you go to more often than the others, or do you divide and conquer? Yeah, LinkedIn is really my go to destination every morning, and it is the uh, kind of the future of media and media consumption and content creation. I mean, you have people blogging and sharing and commenting and engaging in an environment that doesn't have bots and trolls in a, in a real way. And so I see kind of uh, that as a great opportunity uh, for us to model ourselves after as as we've seen on Facebook and even Twitter, how manipulative uh, a lot of the bad actors have been. So yeah, no, I enjoy LinkedIn a lot and I would encourage folks to create content. You can go there and blog and write and share and create video content or join groups of like-minded folks in, in health and digital health uh, and it's an amazing uh, community so back to ces then i I read your article how how do you go about separating hype from reality because i think when you go to those especially ces where you're looking quite a bit into the future you see these things and look with awe and amazement and then you kind of at least me i kind of step back and wonder what's going to make it to the market and what's going to really stick how do you go about assessing that yeah, the beauty is the market decides, and we can all watch as the market sorts out winners and losers and uh, sort of sorts itself out. Um, I, I, I notice the hype and the, you know, the crazy inventions and, uh, and stuff as, as the next person does. But I also noticed a lot of very practical products and applications and services at CES this year that I think will work themselves into your home and uh, into your life in really meaningful ways. You know, whether it's a, an AI powered smart bed that learns your temperature preference and hardness and softness and, and uh, other character tracks your sleep and other characteristics right through to an amazing array of, of, of wearables from someone like Philips for better sleep and sleep monitoring. Uh, these are all important things as we age and get older as a society. So I, I look for the practical use cases and I saw plenty of those. Do, do you start with your own kind of personal experiences as a, as a basis? Yeah. Yeah. We, we're all, you know, digital health and health tech is very personable, uh, personal rather based on our, you know, conditions, our, our maladies, our illnesses, diseases that we have and, maybe aren't too comfortable talking about or sharing, but increasingly, whatever that may be, whether it's physical or mental health or other challenges you face, uh, you know, genetic challenges or otherwise, there are people developing therapies for those. And some of them are quite simple, like activity tracking and, and, uh, and, and so forth. Others, um, you know, might be uh, pharmaceutical in nature, but there's there's some innovation happening, and it's it's really important to be educated and informed as a patient now, and to sort of take ownership of your own health, whatever uh, wh- whatever that may be. And uh, so that's what I'm really interested in is is kind of waking up to that realization. 
had such an interesting transition time frame where I, when I started with digital health and it kind of came onto my radar and I started to research and learn more about it, I was really under the impression that, well, for me, it was coming from a tech background. It was so obvious that technology could benefit the healthcare industry. And I just naturally assumed all these big healthcare behemoths would see that opportunity and start to move in that direction. And it's kind of went the polar opposite where more, much more the consumer side has had has gained quite a bit more traction where on the on the established side, um, you've seen some changes, you know, definitely with EHRs and there's a whole bunch of things in the works and some some are further along than others. But the consumer side is moving at a rapid pace. And I'm always excited about that because they take such a consumer patient driven approach where in some of the more established that the business model and the structure of healthcare is, makes it quite a bit more complicated to really focus on the patient. Yeah. And we see that trend in other areas where, you know, consumer experiences drive the expectation and the demand in business and enterprise and other applications. I mean, if you're, if you're on Google or Gmail or Google calendar or Facebook or Twitter, you're used to, or Netflix, you're used to this amazing user experience and service. And then when you get into your enterprise or your business, or let's say your EHR, all of a sudden you're, you're faced with a different reality. And so the software providers are having to reinvent themselves with a whole new focus on experience and user interfaces and design thinking. And so that's a good thing. And we've seen that play out in many different industries in many different ways. Yeah, it's hopefully benefits all of us because all of us are going to have to touch healthcare at some point, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, uh, reality for for better and for worse. And we all know family members, friends, coworkers beyond who are suffering from one or more conditions. And uh, it really is empowering to to see the devices and apps and services that are out there that can help, and particularly exciting for virtual care and telemedicine and telehealth and what, what that might mean for extending care in meaningful ways to, uh, to people. Make so it, a big fan of what's happening there as well. Make it a whole lot more convenient to access healthcare. That's for sure. Is it, convenient and, you know, fundamental. It's there are a lot of folks who aren't really able to access care in many ways, uh, either for cost or convenience. And it's opening up new doors in in ways that are important, not just in the U.S., but in developing countries. You know, most of the world, you go from from birth to death without ever seeing a doctor uh, in much of the world. So this is a, a radical opportunity to um, to kind of, uh, you know, help humanity as a whole, not just uh, us here in the States. Absolutely. So when you talked about CES, is there anything that jumped out at CES or maybe any of the other conferences within the last year that really stuck out to you or um, had an impact on you? Yeah, I mean, all I've, I've, I, like everyone else, have been following the hype and excitement around machine learning and deep learning techniques. And I, I think we're beginning to see really practical applications of of AI and deep learning um, not to replace doctors, but to assist doctors in care and to help them with analysis, whether it's, uh, you know, analyzing your patient data, uh, 
uh, or 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 searching for you know medical papers for potential uh, options or AI designing drugs now. So all of these use cases are very much here and now and today. And we're finally getting the data and the techniques and the platforms together to uh, to make this happen. So what an exciting time. Yeah, hopefully it all comes together soon. <laughs> that'd be that'd be a great, great uh, turning point. So Progress, I want exactly. I want to go backwards. You, you started in sales, and the touch points in sales are quite a bit different from a lot of other experiences, whether that be developing or um, any sort of d- different types of experiences within healthcare. How would you characterize the common experiences you've had throughout your sales career? It's particularly focused on healthcare. yeah. I think I think sales and and all its incarnations is about people and it's a people to people kind of engagement. And so in this new world of uh, patients and uh, marketing and selling and digital, we're still about person to person. I mean, when I connect with you on social and I'm engaging you back and forth in a dialogue, that's very much a one on one conversation. Or when I'm at a trade show or an event, uh, it, it really is about uh, communication and collaboration, and so the best salespeople are are that of that ilk. And sales, I think, really, uh, essentially, is is a much better reflection of what social media is today. It is about having conversations and communicating and asking questions and uh, and taking conversations that happen uh, online into the real world. So I think it's. Um, Salespeople, good salespeople, are generally also very curious, and and that that's helpful in in what I do now as a kind of social digital practitioner. Um, so sales is a good stepping stone into a lot of of roles, and I, I enjoyed uh, the people side of selling more than more than anything. Did you? And I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned in sales. Uh, you know, uh, in healthcare where. You know, the doctor-patient relationship is an important one. And uh, how can you, you know, foster communication between and collaboration between, you know, people and even organizations to, to partner effectively? I think you learn a lot in sales from that. Did you find that the role of a salesman in healthcare has changed over time where, I'm sure the relationships and being curious, some of those principles always were there. Um, but especially when, as technologies evolved and come more to the forefront in healthcare, has that changed the way you engage differently? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the selling and sales now, it's, it's, it's no longer about cold calling and pitching. It's about the, in the best way, it's about uh, being a consultant and finding solutions and asking questions and trying to be a consultative uh, person, and I think that's that's where sales is evolving. Uh, I think for good. Um, having said that, you know, in this industry, there's still, particularly in pharma, a lot of practices around sales and marketing that uh, that are pretty uh, pretty ugly. You know, so it has a way to go. Uh, in my opinion. So then talk a little bit more about that. Cause when I, um, when I, I guess when I've experienced sales folks, one of the, me being in industry, it's, it's hard for me to get out and really see 
what's happening and what's moving, where the innovation's happening, what new technologies, what new uh, processes are, are available or how people are approaching problems in healthcare. I use sale, the best salespeople are, have a really firm pulse on where the industry's at and where it's going. Is that a good assessment from your standpoint of what a salesman should be doing? And how do you, how do you personally stay on top of what's happening? Yeah, it's uh, the best salespeople now are are really uh, generating content and uh, informing and educating uh, their potential clients instead of just selling. So they're offering solutions, they're solving problems. Uh, when you go to a big show like Hims in a few weeks, you'll see a lot of salespeople running around. Um, but they're really trying to be helpful. And I think the industry, when it comes to sales and marketing, needs to shift from pushing products or solutions or, you know, the kind of advertising-led approach to, uh, you know, cons- being consultants and solution selling and uh, educating your clients in the marketplace uh, and providing facts and insights and data. And I think that's where the best salespeople, any marketeers can really shine, including on social media. Yeah. Do you find a lot of your leads or the people you're interacting with, do most start online now? You know, there's this notion of a buyer's journey. So think about when you buy a uh, a server rack or something, you kind of educate and do your research online these days. I mean, the, the, the days of picking up the phone and just calling IBM or over. Uh, so you as an IT professional are, are doing pretty much 90% of your research and data gathering and data collection and pricing and questioning before you even talk to a sales rep or a vendor. And, uh, and, and then when you're ready, you're kind of 90% of the way down the road. And I think that's true of a lot of things. Now people are using social and digital and search and content to educate themselves and form themselves and develop opinions and make decisions. So it's increasingly important for companies, for firms, for vendors to keep in touch with those prospects through the buyer's journey and to educate them and to share, you know, data and, and, uh, and positioning and insight and, and analysis that they have. Uh, so they kind of stay top of mind. Yeah, the best example of that that in my life is when I went to buy a car because I did exactly what you just said and searched yeah. search high and high and low to find the best deal. And I came to the car salesman thinking it, it's like the old way where you get to negotiate, you go back and forth a few times. There's some, and then they came back to me and said, "No, no, no, that's not how this works anymore. There's no wiggle room. If we if we leave wiggle room, people don't even show up. They go to the other place that has the lower price online." Right. And so that's uh that's a new reality and that's happening across many different industries and verticals and never has there been more content out there available about whatever topic you're interested in. Uh, whether it's cars or, you know, health technology. And and so on one hand, it's uh, an opportunity and it's just amazing to uh, do the research. On the other hand, it's, it's a challenge, right? I mean, people are confused. They're presented with uh, almost infinite number of options and how do you navigate through that? 
you really need a trusted advisor. You need really good consultant. You need insight or expertise. So, you know, the expertise and skills and knowledge and trust have become, kind of become the new uh, value add that uh, these days, whether it's in my business or yours in the IT side. Yeah, and I, I just recently purchased a house, and that's one purchase I would never want to go go it alone without some salesperson or a realtor helping me along the way. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of different pieces within the healthcare industry where you would never add a, a big, huge software package like you would purchasing something on Amazon. So, But I like the way you said it, how it, the salesman is really transitioning to more of a consultant to try to help right size and make sure you get the right fit. Yeah, and this this phenomenon applies uh, throughout, you know, the industry or industries. I mean, think about your doctor. There's all this talk of replacing doctors with AI over time, and it seems just silly. I mean, uh, the idea of of trusting an algorithm that you know nothing or very little about is, is kind of nonsensical. Where AI really shines is is in helping doctors and nurses, nurses and IT leaders, you know, manage their, you know, you know uh, work and to be more effective and to uh, be less error prone, to be more efficient in their day-to-day work. And I think that's what I'm, I'm particularly excited about is sort of AI plus humans, not AI replacing humans. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel there will always be the need for a, some semblance of a salesperson Particularly, I, the one I think of in most frequently in healthcare is purchasing software packages. And maybe you would have better insight into the gamut of what salespeople do across healthcare. But do you think there's always going to be that need for something, even with AI coming to the forefront? Yeah, I think I think for for a lot of basic interaction, you know, a self service is going to be the future. You know, think about a basic chat bot or a you know, intelligent uh, agent, you know, being able to handle maybe 80%, but that human is always going to need to be there for that 20% or to be able to jump in uh, for the, for the really tricky stuff. So again, I think it's going to be bots plus humans uh, will ultimately uh, be this, the winning formula. Great. I want to pivot towards Evan and away from kind of the industry and sales, um, when so you were a salesperson or sales associate for a bunch of companies and then at some point you decided to venture out on your own can you talk through how that process went about yeah so i i was selling and uh you know typical uh roles whether direct or partners or biz dev alliances and then this thing called social media came along whether it was twitter in the beginning but then linkedin and I soon realized that um, what a be- what a better a better way to network uh, and and to develop relationships and open doors uh, versus a traditional in person events or the telephone you know the old uh, white pages there really wasn't a, a a platform like that in for for much of you know the eighties and nineties but when the network social networking came along. It was a chance to sort of uh, do your research, 
to to identify and learn about an individual before you met to to uh, use it to open doors and um, sort of the phenomenon of social selling was born where you're combining social networking with traditional sales tactics. And I think most salespeople now use social, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn to sort of um, network with prospects, to get prospects to contact them based on content, to uh, catch people's attention, to drive people to events or to meetings or meetups or, or other in-person activities. So selling has really changed uh, pretty radically. It's funny hearing your experience when social first came on, because I was in a much different period of my life. I was in college, so I was using it primarily to post pictures and try to stay out of trouble as best I could. Did you inherently just uh, look at social through the lens of your career and think, how can I leverage this? Was it obvious right out of the gate? It wasn't obvious out of the gate, but it was obvious it was really compelling and attention-getting and intriguing. And I think people are, are just waking up to that now, that the, the deeper you, you sort of peel back the onion, the more ways that you, you can imagine using social media and all its forms to engage with the marketplace and, and share ideas and, and develop business opportunities. And, um, you know, new platforms are constantly evolving, springing up whether it's like Reddit or Quora or Nextdoor or, you know, pick your platform. And, and so each of those presents unique opportunities for sales and, and marketing and business people. And so, um, you know, it was definitely an evolution. Where do you stand on what social platforms you should be on? Do you think about it in terms of what your job is or what your purpose for using them is and then be selective? Or are you of the opinion that everyone should be on every platform? Well, certainly people like myself who are practitioners of marketing and digital uh, should look at every platform as a unique opportunity. I think most people should pick one, two, three platforms to focus on because you only have so much time in the day. But each 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 community is unique and different and has its uh, unique opportunities, challenges, uh, caveats and wrinkles, et cetera. So it really is a matter of getting your hands dirty, you know, rolling up your sleeves and and trying these things out and seeing what works for you. I know people who've made, uh, you know, business doing business to business on Facebook, uh, which isn't known for a B2B platform. But with 2 billion people on Facebook, there are ways to, you know, to monetize that, too. So it really depends on your goals, objectives and uh and experience, you know, what what kind of content are you creating and how can you target that towards a very you know specific audience? Yeah, I like what you said earlier about encouraging people to put content out. That's I've kind of evolved into that. I started just watching and I quickly realized you can't just be a participant if you want to grow your presence online. You really have to pick a niche and, and find a way to communicate something unique. How would what advice would you give someone if they're just starting and maybe like someone fresh out of college still trying to figure it out, would you kind of tread lightly and just kind of dip your toe in the water or should you just try to go in and figure it out along the way? I would say the key is, is like most things, listening and learning. 
in social, it means social listening, you know, tracking the top 10 conversations or topics you're interested in, uh, staying on top of those keywords and hashtags and listening to who's who in the zoo and engaging. You know, these are water cooler style conversations. And whether you have 10 followers or 10,000, you can still participate in the conversations and add your two cents, add some value and uh, get to know, you know, the community that's out there. And over time, you'll like anything else, you'll develop relationships and followers and insights. Uh, but, but listening and learning to start, I think, is key versus getting out there and sort of broadcasting to the world. Uh, so, so I, I think patience too is, is the other thing, you know, I've been tweeting and posting and blogging for 10 plus almost 12 years. Uh, and I can say there's no silver bullet, you know, there's no one tactic or, or, or technique that's gonna, that's gonna, you know, open the floodgates. It really is, uh, just experimenting and being patient. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point to underscore because they, I'm sure you know, and plenty of other people know, there's techniques where you can inflate your followers. But I, I went down that path and quickly realized, what, why am I doing this? I don't, I don't need to. I want to grow a community. I want to grow people that I can connect with, not just a bunch of bots that make my numbers look good. Yeah, and that that does. It's a it's a cheap thrill. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it doesn't do anything in terms of your engagement, your footprint or you're learning and um, ultimately it's a fool's errand. And I think it's pretty clear who's playing that game and who's not frankly, someone who has an intelligent observation or insight with 10 followers gets more of my attention than uh, someone with zero uh, uh, to give who has a million followers. So I see that all the time actually. So uh, the key is to be, uh, be a participant and, and don't just sort of mail it in. Yeah. And it's okay if you only have 20 followers. I mean, <laughs> everyone started there and, and grew, grew it up over time. I think that's another point to underscore and don't feel, I, I knew I felt that initially when I started to get into LinkedIn and some of the other platforms where I was like, ah, oh, I don't, I don't have that many followers. Why put out content? But that's, that's the only way to, to grow into it being something at some point down in the future. Yeah, and you can ride on top of other people's content. I mean, I do have a podcast, but frankly, I go on one or two podcasts a day like yours and uh, and ride on top of what other folks are creating and doing. And that applies to podcasts or Twitter chats or in-person events. I mean, you can participate and add value without having a lot of followers because it's based on your what you share and your comments and color commentary and insights. And you will get noticed. Trust me, it's uh, it's not that hard to be seen and heard these days. Yeah, especially if you're unique. So, so I want to go back to the company that you and Irma started. Um, can you give us the kind of the background of how that came to be and and what the purpose behind the company is? Yeah. So Irma and I started Avira Health with a view towards taking our industry background and personal obsessions with. Uh, social and digital, but also, you know, health care and health technology to clients. And we have a who's who of clients from, you know, big brand, blue chip brands right through to 
early stage innovative startups and we're helping them uh, get seen and heard uh, across the social media landscape and in the process creating content and driving engagement and visibility and reach uh, whether it's sort of day-to-day on social media or at big events like hymns or ces so we're kind of an extension of our clients own internal social digital team helping what um, you know is uh, is tough these days which is to get noticed and to get seen by uh an audience that includes not just you know end users, but uh, analysts and journalists and media and press and and the rest of of who's who on social media these days. Yeah, and I, and I saw everywhere I looked, you mentioned storytelling. Is that is that the best way to cut through the noise and get noticed, like you mentioned? Yeah, it's it's either telling your story in a, in a fun and entertaining, interesting way. Or it's uh, what you're doing, interviewing and, and learning about other people's stories and asking questions and uh, creating content around those stories. Um, storytelling is kind of as old as time and people are attracted to to new and interesting stories. And whether you do that in, in you know written word or spoken word or video word or live streaming, really it could be any of the above. Is a big part of your role as in helping these companies just teaching the platforms or have we moved beyond that where everyone kind of has a comfort level with the cl- platforms and it's figuring out the nuance? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, really, no one has a comfort level with these platforms. <laughs> I mean, okay. You know, they're constantly changing and evolving and the algorithms are, are pretty opaque and, and there are new features being introduced and... Um, it's a real, frankly, it's a bit of a mess. You know, the apps are, are can be confusing, uh, particularly if you're a busy manager or executive. You don't have time to invest in uh, uh, these platforms like like I would do 12 hours a day. And, and so, yeah, there's a lot of consultation and help and, uh, frankly, time that uh, that's needed to invest that people don't have. Even big companies, you, you know, you think like an Intel is a client. Uh, they work with analysts and influencers and others to help bring audiences to their events and news and announcements. And um, you get much better engagement, frankly, with organic kind of digital social reach than you would through even paid ads or paid social. So it brings uh, bringing audiences to the news is kind of the new way of doing marketing. Yeah, they trick you I'm thinking it's not <laughs> news, but it actually is news. So what does a typical engagement look like for you guys? And how do you, how much variance is there between some of the bigger companies and some of the startups, newer companies that you work with? Yeah, so it, it could be everything from uh, uh, live tweeting and live blogging and streaming and posting at an event like CES or HIMSS to, to help people at the event kind of get, get their message across or even maybe who aren't at the event, uh, at the event, who are interested in the topics and themes, to get a peek at what's happening at the event through live audio and video and and uh, and text, or it could be just day to day content. Uh, the, these conversations happen twenty four seven, and so there's a need for a kind of drumbeat, a cadence of posts and tweets and chats, and uh, and we help clients with that. And uh, we do it to have fun as well. I mean, we're, we're, you know, I think we're both obsessed with these platforms 
and it's uh, it's not just educational; it's entertaining. You sort of like the word edutainment, and um, it's quite addictive, uh, for for better or worse. And, and so we're helping clients w- with all the above. Yeah. How much importance do you place on analytics? Because I know you can get a, a ton of data from the posts and content you put out. Do you use that as kind of a foundational point to, to assess? Yeah, analytics is, is, is key. The beauty of social and digital is very data-driven and through their internal analytics reporting and through third-party tools, you can get a real feeling for what works, what doesn't work. Uh, what engagement uh, looks like, website clicks, um, and it's all very trackable. So there's no excuse for, you know, putting out content that doesn't perform and there's no excuse for, um, you know, frankly, uh, not succeeding. You can really measure what's, what's, what winning, what's winning and what's losing and adjust accordingly, which in the old days of, you know, advertising through billboards or newspaper ads was never the case. It was sort of fire and forget, uh, forget or re- fire and regret, and 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 cross your fingers. Whereas you know these days everything is data driven. Yeah, and do you find companies use social to almost put out feelers and kind of get a, a preemptive pulse on how things are going to be received? Yeah, a lot of times they do. I mean, I, I have clients who do things like Twitter polls, you know, questions of the day soliciting feedback, uh, not just publicly, but privately through direct messaging. Uh, you can have sort of one-on-one private group or group conversations. And uh, what a better way to get really intimate with not just customers, but partners or analysts or the, you know, journalists out there uh, in ways that you, you couldn't do through traditional media. Do, and and how do you balance kind of the, how do you balance the analytics you get back you can't put all your stock into that, right? Because I find, especially Twitter is a good one, I think, where the reality of how people engage in real life versus how they engage in Twitter, there's a pretty sizable disconnect. How do you go about just making sense of what's real and what's not? Part of it's experience. I think it's a matter of um, uh, trying different platforms, different tools, measuring them against your real world let's say, uh, uh, expectation or experience and, uh, you know, using multiple tools to maybe benchmark each of the tools and, and, um, you know, uh, uh, always, I'm frankly, I have my marketing tech stack is constantly evolving. I'm always looking at new tools and platforms that might be relevant or interesting. Of course, the APIs on these social platforms are always evolving. And so it's a matter of uh, looking at what data you can extract, which uh, changes over time. LinkedIn, you get very little, for example. And, and so, yeah, there's uh, uh, unfortunately no uh, no simple easy button or right easy answer for a lot of this stuff. All right. This is the question of the day. Are you on TikTok? You know, I'm watching TikTok. I, I find it fascinating. TikTok has a great search engine. So I like to go in and see, well, on, on technology topics, you know, what what are people sharing? What are they curating? What 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 gets traction? 99% of TikTok is kind of where Instagram was a few years ago, just, uh, you know, music videos and, and silly, silly stuff. 
but as the platform grows and matures, it's going to be leveraged by B two B tech brands, and so it's it's worth you know understanding how it works and the ins and outs and preparing yourself to that that point where yes, I will do a TikTok video. So, <laughs> but right now it's it's in that nascent uh, phase. But this is how these platforms work, and uh, Reddit was the same way, you know, three years ago, and Instagram was five years ago. They all sort of grow up and mature over time, and uh, when they hit, you kind of have to be prepared as a marketeer to take advantage of it. Yeah, TikTok's interesting because it's the first platform that's starting to tick up where I'm outside the the demographic that probably is on there, and I'm feel like I'm not exactly invited to the party, but I'm watch. I'm like you, I'm watching it closely and hoping I can uh, still fit in and blend in and not stand out like a sore thumb. But it- yeah, exactly. Well, look, great, great talking to you. And really, I appreciate what you do. And I uh, look forward to kind of keeping in touch on, on social as your show grows over time. Yeah, thanks so much. This was this is super enlightening. And thanks for letting me peg you with questions all over the place. I think you gave a ton of practical advice on and it both for personal and professional use of, of social. And I, I think it's so relevant because it's in a lot of ways, it's a new frontier for people. They know the platforms, but they don't necessarily know the right way to engage. So I think this will be great for all the listeners and really appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Thanks, Evan. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Talk to you later.